0: that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. ...is due his name. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 15. Today and then next week, we'll finish up on the uh, story of, of Samson. But... Um, I wanted us to look at chapter 15 in the life of Samson. His life is an interesting one, isn't it? A life of incredible power, you know, incredible strength. But a man who does not manifest the kind of internal qualities and character that we would hope a man like him would manifest. You know, that the outward prowessness that he manifests would be um, sort of balanced out by an internal fortitude and an internal character that stands as tall as his outward strength but it is not to the very end of his life that we see him sort of rise to the occasion in one sense that's kind of sad that at the end of his life he would finally you know come to manifest this Godliness that would have been great if he manifested it the entirety of his life. But if it's going to come, at least let it come at some point in our lives, right? It's sort of like, I can't help but making the comparison to the man on the, the thief on the cross, you know, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Wouldn't it be wonderful for him to have said that years before, you know, when Messiah was first walking the earth and perhaps if he first heard of him. Unfortunately, it was at the very last breaths of his life. In one sense, it's wonderful that he got there, even if it's with our last breath, but how much better it would be if it was with the totality of our life. Samson is sort of like that, you know? There's that moment of um, sort of disappointment, and yet at least it ends on a note of optimism. Optimism. And of course, in the book of Hebrews, where he is listed among the champions of faith. So even if we have faith like a mustard seed, God can do great things. And even if it is our last breath, God can use that last breath in a very powerful way. As many individuals have come to faith, no doubt, over the course of history through the testimony of that man's last (laughs) words on the cross next to Messiah. So Lord, the Lord can use us wherever we are at. But may our prayer be that the Lord would use us the entirety of our life and not just a few moments in it, right? So in chapter 15, after some days at the time of the wheat harvest, so we're around May in the in the scheme of things, Samson goes to visit his wife in chapter 14 whom he had married, his wife in The chamber. And he had visited his wife with a young goat and he said, I will go to my wife. And, but her father would not allow him to go in unto her. And her father said, Look, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Wow. This is like nutty, isn't it? I mean, he was just married to this, this woman. And um, because those during the wedding feast had pressured his wife to tell them the riddle that Samson had uh, given out of the eater comes something sweet. You remember the honey that was in the lion? They forced his wife to tell them the riddle, to go to Samson, make sure Samson explains the riddle. And if not, they said, we will burn you and your father and your home. And so she was in a quandary. So she did. She kept pressing in on Samson. And finally, Samson tells her the riddle. And she in turn tells it to these 30 men that are at this wedding feast. And when they then answer the riddle to Samson, Samson is exceedingly angry about this. But now he lost the bet, and he's got to get 30 change of clothing and and 30 linen changes of clothing. So what does he do? He goes among the Philistines, and he kills 30 Philistines. And he takes their clothing, and he pays off their debt. Now, about a year later, he's coming back to his wife. And now because the father at least gives the excuse, I thought you hated her because she told the riddle to those that were at the party. I just thought you hated her. You didn't want anything to do with her. After all, she is a Philistine. You're a Jew. And so I gave her not just to another man, but to the best man in his wedding, his companion. Now Samson is really angry. So what does Samson do? And this is where, you know, Samson gets kind of juvenile, you know, and uh, just sort of just an explosion of violence. He traps 300, my translation says foxes, but the Hebrew word here is better translated jackals. Jackals, by the way, roam in packs. So it would be much easier, although I don't know how you do this, but much easier to capture 300 jackals than it would be 300 foxes. So he captures them. How long does it take him to do this? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But he captures them, and then he ties the tail. How do you do this with a wild jackals? How does a person do this? He ties their tails together in pairs. So he has 150 pairs of jackals, and between the tails, he ties these torches, and he lights them up. And during the season of May, where it's the harvest season, and there are bundles of wheat that are stacked. There are some wheat grains that are lying flat that are getting ready to be bundled. There are olive groves, and he sends these 150 pair of jackals with the torches tied between their tails through the countryside around Timnah, just burning up all of the crops, all of the vineyards, all of the olive groves, just burning it down. When the companions, when these individuals hear how their farms are going up in smoke, they then go to his wife, whom they had threatened to burn to death if she didn't get the riddle out of Samson. And now that Samson has burned down all of their farms and all of their harvest and all of their grain, they then take revenge on his wife and their family, and they burn them and they execute them and they die anyway. And then the text tells us that the Philistines now want to bring an end to, to Samson. And so a thousand men, a thousand Philistines go on the march to get a hold of Samson, even as he leaves this territory. What happens is, 3,000 men of Judah come to Samson. And they say, Samson, what is wrong with you? Don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What a sad commentary. This is the land of Israel. This is the land that God gave to his people. And he told them to oust all of these nations. And for the men of Judah particularly to state that the Philistines, not only are they in our territory, but they rule over us. And Samson, you should know better than to get them angry with us. After all, now there's a thousand men that are on the march to come after us. So Samson tells these 3,000 men of Judah, and consider this, First of all, Samson must have been exceedingly strong and powerful because they wouldn't just go with a messenger, but it's 3,000 men that are going to him. But notice this as well. They don't even realize he's a judge. They don't even realize that God is using him to bring about the beginning of the destruction of the Philistines. Their destruction doesn't come about until the time of Samuel and David, but Samson is the last of the judges, and he's going to begin their demise. But they don't even know it. That's how terrible the situation in Israel has gotten. People are doing what's right in their own eyes, and they're not seeing God, as we've been talking about him this morning. They're not seeing him. And so they come to Samson, and Samson says, Well, listen... First of all, you need to promise me you will not attack me. This is a a good side of Samson because he knows that if they attack him, he's going to defend himself and they're all going to die. So he tells them to make sure that you don't attack me, but tie my hands up with these ropes and bring me to the Philistines. They tie him up. They escort him to the Philistines. The Philistines then see that the people of Judah are not fighting with them, so they allow them to leave. And once the men of Judah are gone, Samson busts out of these ropes that he was tied with. There was a donkey that had recently died. Remember, he had taken a Nazarite vow. He's not supposed to go near any carcasses. He's already gone toward a lion. Now he's going to a dead uh donkey. And he grabs the leg and hip joint of the donkey. I mean, like, how big is this thing, right? And he just grabs it. And with the hip joint of this donkey, he starts swinging wildly and he kills upwards of the thousand Philistines that have come after him. And the beginning of the deliverance takes place. And then he sings this song. He's a poet as well. His riddle is poetry. And here he says, With the jawbone of a donkey, and heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jaw. I said the hip, but the jawbone of the donkey, and used it to slay these men. At the end of the chapter, it says in verse 18, And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and he said, now here's his first prayer. Not a very spiritual prayer, I might add. But he says, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Well, it's wonderful. He recognizes that he is God's servant. But then he says, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? It's almost like a complaining prayer. You know, you brought me this deliverance and now I'm just going to die of thirst? What kind of a God are you? Why don't you provide for me with this as well? You know what this reminds me of, too? It reminds me of the Israelites in the wilderness. God brought about all these miracles, all of these judgment and plagues on the Egyptians. When they come out of Egypt, there's no water. And they say, if you brought us into the wilderness to die, well, if God had intended to kill them, why did he take them out of Egypt to begin with? And if God had intended to allow Samson to die, why did he give him this strength by his spirit? It says three times in this section that the spirit of God didn't just come upon Samson, but it rushed upon him. It just entered into him in a very powerful rush of presence, almost like an adrenaline kick in, and then he starts going to town. And if God is doing that, is he just going to leave him to die? And yet Samson's prayer seems to almost be a complaint And so he says, and what does God do? And God split open a hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came from it. And when he drank, his spirit was returned, and he revived. And yet God continues to be gracious. Now, if you look at chapter 16, I just want to look at the first part of this, because then we find out sometime later, Samson goes down to Gaza And there he saw a prostitute, and he went in unto her. Now Samson is getting even more reckless as time goes on. Now it's not just a woman of the Philistines he's attracted to. Now it's a prostitute. And now he's not just in the region of the Philistines, but now he's in one of their major cities, Gaza. And now he's not just there for a moment, but he spends the evening there until midnight. He allows himself even to be surrounded by the Philistines. He's being very presumptuous with the gift God has given to him and his strength. He's almost not even thinking anything could harm me. In one sense, this is like the danger of successfulness. He's been successful each of these times. He's flaunted his Nazarite vow. He's been near a dead body. He, it Apparently, he was drinking wine when he shouldn't have been, say, at the wedding, at the party. He has uh, been misusing his strength in a way. In each case, what he has done is he's taken personal vengeance on the Philistines, He's only attacked them because of what it means for him. He's not doing this to deliver Israel. He's doing this for his own personal benefit. So he's getting reckless. And he's utilizing his gifts irresponsibly. And now he's in Gaza. And now he's with a prostitute. And Samson, and, and then the Gazites, the Philistines there, they hear that Samson has come. And now he allows himself to be surrounded. And they surrounded the place and they set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of morning, then we will kill him. But Samson, before morning at midnight, he gets up. And what does he do? Again... He's reckless. They're laying an ambush at the gate. So what does he do? He just grabs the gates of the city. He grabs the gates with the bars, with the hinges, uh, the, all the mechanism. These gates, there were two sides of them. Each gate was at least 15 feet wide. They could, be, they could have been as high as 20 feet tall. These gates were the entrance to the main city of Gaza. And he just rips them off the hinges. And then he picks them up. How does he balance these things? How does he hold them on his head somehow? I mean, how does he grab these things? And what does he do with them? He carries them from Gaza to Hebron. That's a span of 40 miles. And not only is it a distance of 40 miles, but it's uphill. 2,500 feet. And he's only 5'4", five, 5'6". Five, I mean, this is, this is an amazing display of strength. From all external appearances, this is a guy you want as your friend. <laughs> you know? This is the guy you want at your right side, left side, front and behind, whenever you had a need. But his character was terrible. His internal reality was so terribly flawed, you know. It just reminds me how often we look at people, you know. Man judges by the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. How often we are enamored without external appearances, you know. Um, I have to admit, I certainly am. Mary Lou will tell you, I've just not gotten over my height or my shortness, you know. And so whenever I see someone, you see how tall that guy was? Holy crow, you know. And uh, she said, you know, why are you so obsessed with your shortness? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'm just very much aware of it. That's all, you know. The other day when I was at Roger's Roger's funeral or memorial service and I met one of his grandsons, shook his hand, the guy was like, you know, he had these cannons. You know, first thing I said to him, so how much do you bench? Oh, 450. I said, holy crow, you know. Outward appearance, you know. I'd like to bench 450. I'd like to do anything 450, you know, or something. But there it is, outward, external. How often we see pastors on the podium You know, we hear them speak. We say, man, this guy is good. And then we read of the demise of some of these individuals because their internal character is flawed. We judge by outward appearance. God sees the heart. So what does he see when he sees your heart and mine? You know, what do we see in ourselves that we oftentimes maybe take for granted, flaunt, and we need to see ourselves for who we really are? I can't help but think of this passage, if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians. In chapter 3, Paul says these amazing words. This is a passage in which he is contrasting the Mosaic law with the new covenant benefits that we have in Messiah, how the law kills, how it's a ministry of death, how it leads to death because it does not provide the power by which we could obey it. But now that Messiah has come, he does liberate us and he empowers us and he enables us not only externally perhaps to be different because of the gifts he entrusts to us and the gifts operate on the external dimension of things. You know, we see somebody with musical gifts, we see the external, we see somebody with gifts of counseling and we're very grateful for the insight they give us, it's the external. We see someone with gifts of teaching and we say, wow, I really can learn from this individual and we're impressed with the external, those are the gifts that God has granted to us. And the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He continues to use Samson's gifts externally, even though he is not walking very closely with God. And so in this passage, it says, and we all, in verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul is talking about how transformation of character takes place. And I want to just break this down a little bit. Look at verse 18. And we all, all of us that know Yeshua as Messiah, God is at work transforming our character. That's what Paul is saying. We all with unveiled face are beholding, I think in one translation, as it were in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. So the Lord has his hand extended to all of us that know Yeshua as Messiah. It's extended to us in order to bring about a character transformation to go along with the gifts and calling that he's given to each one of us as well. Now notice this, he says, and we all with unveiled face. In the Greek, that expression is a perfect participle, which means a veil was over our eyes at one time that had blinded us to the glory of Messiah. We could not see it. This is why Paul talks about that there's a veil, like the veil Moses had when he came down from Mount Sinai, and it concealed the glory of God. He veiled his face so that the glory of God would not be as pervasive and bright as it would have otherwise had been reflected off of the face of Moses. So he put a veil over his face so as not to have the glory of God shining out in all of its abundance, in all of its power, in all of its radiance. Now what Paul is saying, when we come to know Messiah, the veil has been removed and, given the Greek tense, it remains removed. It is always removed from our eyes, is what he's saying. And then he says, we are able, therefore, to behold the glory of God. Now, there it is a present participle, which means to say that our beholding of his glory is now uninterrupted. So the veil is forever removed and our our reflecting or our gazing, let's say that, our gazing on the glory of God becomes uninterrupted. And to the degree to which we see that glory of God, It will transform our lives. Now, here's something else I learned. Paul says here, and we all, all of us who are believers, have the veil removed and it remains removed. We behold the Lord and we continually behold him without interruption, the glory of the Lord. We're therefore or thereby being transformed. This word transformed has to do with the transformation of our character, not just our external appearance. He's saying our character is, in fact, being transformed. And this is what's so amazing. In Mark chapter 9 and in Matthew chapter 17, we have the moment when Messiah was transfigured In all of his glory. Remember that moment? In fact, Matthew 17 is really critical because in Matthew 16, Yeshua asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they say, You are the Messiah, Peter says, the Son of the living God. And then in chapter 17, he shows Peter and James and John what it means for him to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and he appears in all of his glory. And it says both Matthew 17 and Mark 9 in verse 2, Matthew 17 2, Mark 9 2, that he was transfigured in all of his glory. The same word translated transfigured in Mark and Matthew is the same word translated here as being transformed. So what we're told is the same glory that Messiah manifested. In all of his brilliance is what's happening to you and me. That the glory of Messiah is taking hold of your character. And this isn't the only place that that is told, which is quite remarkable. For example, take a look at chapter 4. We're in Second Corinthians. If we wanted to ask, look, he says that we're being transformed into the same image the same image as the glory that messiah has. Now look at chapter 4. You want to know what that glory is? Look at chapter 4 verse 4. In their case, that is the unbelieving world, the god of this world has blinded their minds. Remember in the book of Judges, they were only seeing what was right in their own eyes. The evil one blinds us and that's all we see. But look what he says, when we come to know messiah, the blindfold is removed. The veil is removed. And now look what he says. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the good news of the glory of Messiah, who is the image of God. Look back at 318. We're being transformed into the same image. What is that image? We're told in chapter 4, verse 4, it's the image of God. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, I think it's like verse 18 or so, it's the image of the invisible God. If you look at John chapter 1, it's John tells us that the word became flesh, he tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When we look at John chapter 14, Philip says, Can you show us the Father? And he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you look at Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us we are predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. And what is the image of his Son? It's the very express image of God himself. And when God created human beings, man and women, in the garden... He created us in his image. And what has happened is, because of the fall, the image has been marred. But because of the redemption, moment by moment, we're being transformed back to the image that God had intended us to manifest by means of the glory of Messiah himself. So the problem with Samson was he did not permit, perhaps we might say, that transformative process to work in his life as God had intended it to work in his life, today we have a greater opportunity because Messiah has come. And his coming is not just merely to get us from here to heaven. His purpose in coming was to get us to be more like we were initially made to be when he created us in his image. And that image is what we see in Messiah. Messiah. And therefore, the fruit of the Spirit is the image of Messiah. It's the character of Messiah. So how does it happen? And I think it happens this way. Number one, we have to have the veil removed. We have to have the veil removed from our eyes so that we see Yeshua for who he is in all of his glory. The second thing is, not only must the veil be removed, but we need to focus on the glory of Messiah. Messiah. We need to focus on who he is and what he has done. Too often we are focused on our own limitations. We're focused on our own challenges. And sometimes we're too focused on our own successes like Samson was. That's the danger of success. We take for granted what God has enabled us to be and to do. Because whatever it is we can be, whatever it is we can do, whatever it is we have, we have by the grace of God. And to the degree to which we think it's because of what we have done, we've become like Samson. That doesn't mean he takes it away from us. Look what he does with Samson. He keeps strengthening him by his spirit. But when we look at the life of Samson, none of us are impressed. And I don't think God was too pleased. And so what we need to be doing is, number one, we need to have the veil removed that we would see the Lord for all of his glory and all that he is. We need to put aside the veils that blind us to his glory and distort who he truly is, that we see him clearly and distinctly. We need to be ones that then focus on him, And who he is. It's like those non-Jews that came to the disciples and they said, we would see Yeshua. I mean, if it was me, I'd love to talk with John. I'd love to sit down with Peter. It would be a blessing to talk to Nathaniel or Andrew or Matthew or any of these men, wouldn't it? But are we like those that came? We would see Yeshua, you know? We want to see him in all of his glory. And so back to 2 Corinthians, we all, every one of us, who have had the veil removed, we behold the glory of the Lord. And by beholding the glory of the Lord, being enamored with who he is, resting in him, worshiping him, allowing his word to just take residence in our hearts and in our minds. He's saying the degree to which we focus on him, we experience a transformation into the same image as he is. And this from one degree, my text says, of glory to another. Some translations say from glory to glory. When we came to know Yeshua as Messiah, that's when we began this, this journey of glory. And the glory was initially conferred upon us, you might say. The glory of Messiah. Messiah. And over the course of our lives, we keep going through a process of moving from glory to glory to glory to glory, which will not be completed until we're in his own presence. And when we are, 1 John says, we shall see him as he is. Why? Because we will be most like him then as we go through this transformative process into the image of his son. We see ourselves externally. We see one another externally, but God sees something going on internally that we ought to be optimistic about. You know, we're not all there yet. We got that. We are very much aware of that as we look at one another. Maybe not when we look at the mirror, but when we look at one another, we know we were not there yet. But one day we will get there, because that's the promise. He who has begun from glory to glory, he who has begun a glorious work in you, a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Messiah. Like Samson, he does not give up on Samson. You and I would have said, what's wrong with this guy? Although I love his power, you know, I love his strength. What's wrong with you, Samson? But I don't take it personally, you know. But God sees him and he loves him. He sees him and he answers his prayers. He sees him and he holds on to his chosen one whom he chose from the beginning before he was born and he doesn't let him go. You and I are no different. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world and he has set his love upon you and he's not going to unset it. (laughs) He's not Going to let it go. And if there's any example of it, I think Samson's a great one. Because God's love is faithful. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And if he's called you, he will not uncall you. And if he's loved you, he's not going to unlove you. And if he's equipped you, he's not going to unequip you. He's going to love you to the very end and to bring you to the place. He's intended to bring you from the very beginning. And so the Lord is a good God. He's a powerful God. And as strong as Samson was externally, God is more powerful yet internally. And he will transform your life and mine from glory to glory because of the glory of Messiah whom we gaze upon and allow the freedom to do his work of transformation and dare I say it transfiguration when one day we will be glorified before him forever. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel with a large or small would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.